Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more information. My name is Babak Shah, an associate professor in pharmacy practice at the Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia. And our guests today are Dr. Morgan Taylor, a clinical pharmacy specialist in the pediatric intensive care unit, and Dr. Sarah Shukard, a clinical pharmacy specialist in pediatric hematology and oncology. Both Sarah and Morgan are at the SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing ketamine's role in pediatric patients. Welcome, Morgan and Sarah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So Morgan, I want to begin with you first, and I wanted to ask you, what are some of the indications for ketamine use in critically ill patients? Let's start there. Yeah, we use it quite a bit. And honestly, it really isn't that much different than what you might see in an adult population. We see a lot of indications for procedural sedation, and we'll use it in the ED or the PICU, whether it be for a laceration repair, a fracture reduction, abscess drainage, blind placement, those sorts of things. It's a really great agent that we see for procedural sedation. We also use it in status asthmaticus. It has a nice additional bronchodilatory effect that you can get out of it in that population. Rapid sequence intubation, so again, kind of along the lines for the status asthmaticus patients. We will also see in the ED more for severe agitation or psychosis, kind of giving that IM dose like you've probably read about or seen in the adult population. And then refractory status epilepticus is one that I think kind of an indication that started to be used more ketamine in the adult population. And now we're kind of catching along and using it for refractory cases in the pediatric groups. There's a couple bit of newer literature coming out. There's a newer study from Jacob Witz in 2020 that looked at how many of these kids that were actually admitted to the PICU received ketamine infusions for refractory status epilepticus. And they included 69 patients and actually 46% of them had their seizure terminated, which is pretty good when you're thinking about having to add on concomitant agents and trying to abate the seizure for the kid. There's also additional literature for sedation in the ICU. So the 2020 critical care guidelines kind of came out for pain, agitation, and delirium and critically ill pediatric patients. So we kind of call those the PANDEM guidelines. And this was one of the recommendations they had was to use ketamine as an option in sedation for children who you just can't get adequately sedated with other agents or you need to kind of switch it up and have a rotation happening. So there's more indications coming about that we're seeing it used in. And then a big part of why it is useful for us in a variety of these different scenarios relates back to how it works. So kind of, I'm sure what everybody has already heard, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. So this is going to work by inhibiting your glutamate activity. And it's kind of dose dependent. So at those higher doses, that's where you have that dissociative or cataleptic state that happens. And then it also provides at those doses, the sedation, the analgesia, anxiolytic, and amnestic properties. 
versus when used for procedural sedation, it does have the advantage of having this cardiopulmonary function that's preserved. So respiratory drive is preserved. That's kind of one of the biggest reasons that we like using it for procedural sedation. And then one thing to keep in mind is it does have an additional sympathomimetic effect, which means that you're going to get kind of like this catecholamine surge. So some of our other agents that we use for sedation, we're used to seeing a lot of hypotension from. This is kind of an opposite effect where you're going to see more of a hypertension or increased tachycardia happening, which could make it also a preferred agent in anyone that has hypotension occurring already. We talked about having status asthmaticus where it has that bronchodilator effect. And then in settings with refractory status epilepticus, what's happening there with those prolonged seizures where you have those GABA receptors that are now kind of getting downregulated and that glutaminergic activity is kind of coming up to play, ketamine can help kind of try to abate some of that glutaminergic activity where we're seeing it used more and more there as well. So let's bring Sarah into the fold. And my question for you, Sarah, is Morgan talked a little bit about its use in the ED and the PICU, a lot of procedural sedation. Can you talk to us a little bit about the rational use of ketamine in pediatric patients who don't require sedation? Yeah, so the role of ketamine in patients who don't require sedation really still comes back to that mechanism of action, its activity on the NMDA receptors. So the NMDA receptors are involved in nociception as well as inflammation and neuropathic pain. And then they're also implicated in the central sensitization to opiates. And so we know that NMDA receptor activity is involved in the experience of opioid tolerance and opioid hyperalgesia. So based on this mechanism, we found that the antagonism of NMDA has an intrinsic analgesic effect, as well as the benefit of providing opioid sensitization. So this can be really useful in patient populations such as sickle cell or cancer, where they have sort of a multifactorial pain, sort of a chronic as well as acute component of their pain, as well as chronic opioid exposure, and they would benefit from that opioid sensitization. So in these populations, we often use ketamine as an adjunct to opioids, to provide sort of that intrinsic analgesia with a decreased risk of additive respiratory depression. And it's frequently used in patients who are already experiencing opioid-related toxicities such as respiratory depression or constipation. So this allows us to provide better pain relief without exacerbating those adverse effects. We found that with this added pain medication, we can improve their opioid sensitization, decrease their opioid consumption, and improve their pain control regimen when used as an adjunct with their current opioids. So let's dive a little bit deeper, Sarah, about pain. Can you tell us about the data supporting the use of ketamine for pain and like what patient population specifically? You mentioned sickle cell and cancer, but what's the data behind that? Yeah, so a lot of the studies looking at ketamine in the sickle cell population are specifically targeting patients in the ER. So Al-Shirani and colleagues conducted a study of 278 patients, and this was an adult study looking at patients with sickle cell in the ER, and they were randomized one-to-one to receive either ketamine 0.3 milligrams per kilogram or morphine 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. In this study, they did not find an actual difference in the numerical pain rating scale or hospital admission rates. However, However, they did notice that patients in the ketamine group had a lower overall cumulative opioid dose. So they had on average 0.07 milligrams per kilogram of opioids compared to the morphine group who received 0.13 milligrams per kilogram. And this was, again, with similar admission rates. One thing to note is that they did notice higher rates of adverse effects in the ketamine group compared to the morphine group. Although this was not statistically significant, they did notice a trend towards increase in nausea and vomiting and dizziness in the ketamine group. 
Lubega and colleagues conducted a pretty similar study in the pediatric population looking at children ages 7 to 18 years who presented to the ER in a sickle cell pain crisis. In this study, they used a dose of ketamine 1 milligram per kilogram or morphine 0.1 milligram per kilogram. What they noticed in this study is that the ketamine had a faster onset. So the onset of pain relief was about 60 minutes in the ketamine group compared to 120 minutes in the morphine group. However, once again, they did notice a higher incidence of adverse effects. So about 37% of patients had an adverse effect compared to 3.3% in the morphine group. Of note, all of those were expected non-life-threatening and did not require any intervention. In this study, they did notice that morphine had more treatment failure, so 40% treatment failure in the morphine group compared to ketamine. And so from this, the authors concluded that low-dose ketamine has a pretty comparable analgesic effect compared to morphine, but it's more likely to result in side effects. One thing to note, though, when discussing those side effects is that the doses used in this study were considerably higher than what we typically see for sub-anesthetic dosing. So this may have been the cause of the higher adverse effect rate. And then I guess if we want to talk a little bit more about the cancer pain and other causes of acute pain, there is considerable literature to support its use in those populations. Outside of the ER, you tend to see ketamine dosed more as a continuous infusion as an adjunct for pain. So Masaraccia and colleagues conducted a study of ketamine infusions for pediatric pain. They had 172 patients who had received 270 infusions of low-dose ketamine. The indications for ketamine in this study were acute post-surgical pain in opioid-tolerant patients, refractory acute pain in opioid-naive patients, refractory acute on chronic pain, and acute or chronic pain treatment in palliative care patients. In this study, the ketamine dosing was up to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram per hour at the highest dose. They noticed similar opioid consumption, but a reduction in the mean verbal pain scores from 8.9 before the start of ketamine infusion to 6.5 after the start of ketamine. And again, a slight increased incidence of adverse effects. So they did notice 52 incidents of neuroexcitability or oversedation. However, none of those adverse effects required discontinuation of the ketamine infusion. And then lastly, Sheehy and colleagues conducted a retrospective review of 230 pediatric patients who received subanesthetic ketamine infusions, ranging from 0.05 to 0.1 milligram per kilogram per hour. And once again, they noticed a reduction in pain scores from 6.6 pre-ketamine infusion to 4.3 post-ketamine infusion. So once again, we're seeing a decrease in the overall pain of patients who have ketamine added as an adjunct to their opioid infusions. So the next question I have is for the both of you. And so we talked a little bit about the different uses of ketamine. Let's now shift gears and talking about how do we give it and how much to give it. So what are the routes that we can give ketamine in the pediatric population? And can you tell us a little bit about what considerations we would have with one route versus another? Sure. I'll kind of start us out. Basically, the sky is the limit in terms of routes of ketamine. They decided to manufacture this drug with every route possible. So there's intranasal, there's IV, there's intramuscular, there's oral, anything you want, you can think of. I don't think that they've come out with a patch of fentanyl yet. That's our one caveat. But yeah, most of those are going to be okay to use in your pediatric population. Intranasal is probably the one that's the newest. 
that's on the rise. Looking at studies more for procedural sedation or analgesia, not as much absorption happening there as you can imagine with most intranasal routes, but it is something you could try if you wanted to. IM is another feasible option, more so if you just can't get access or having issues. IM, of course, similar to the adult population, if you're having like a patient with severe agitation or you need to calm them, you could use that. We're not really using it that much outside of the adolescent age group in terms of the agitation component. However, for like procedural sedation or what have you, if they can't get an IV on somebody, IM is a readily available option that they can use. It's nice. It'll still work. The only downside is that the IM, if you are doing it for procedural sedation for somebody in the ER who's potentially going to be discharged home, it is going to last a little bit longer. So just keeping that in mind when you're thinking of your recovery phase for the patient. And the dosing, of course, is higher, but they do have good absorption for the most part. So the dosing for IM is going to be closer to four mg per kg versus if you were going to give something IV as a bolus for procedural sedation, you'd look at starting from one to two mg per kg per dose. And then Sarah, I think you use a lot more of the oral agents than I do. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah. So we do use the IV formulation of ketamine given orally for some of our patients who require additional pain control, particularly in the palliative care setting for patients who are going home on hospice. The reason for the PO formulation is just due to ease of use. It can be difficult to use continuous infusions of ketamine at home. So the oral formulation can be a little bit difficult to tolerate from a taste standpoint. So while it is okay to give the IV formulation undiluted. In patients who don't have an NG tube or a G tube, it is often recommended to sort of dilute the IV formulation and something to sort of mask the bitterness. So sour drinks, cola, and juices tend to be good options for this. In the hospital setting, it's a little bit easier. We can provide continuous infusions, and this is often preferred for patients who require admission for pain management. You know, as we discussed, to sort of decrease their opioid dosing, minimize opioid tolerance and hyperalgesia, but without the side effects that you might see with a bolus, such as what is used in the more sedation setting. So our next question is moving on with the dosing. Can the two of you discuss the dosing of ketamine for the respective indications in your patient populations? And if you can, sort of compare and contrast that to adult dosing for the similar indications. Yeah, there's actually kind of not that big of a difference in terms of like when you're looking at what effect you want to achieve with ketamine and what dose you should use. They're pretty kind of on par with what you would use in an adult population. Ours is just more so the make per kg. So for procedural sedation, like we talked about, would be the one to two make per kg per dose once. And then they're kind of just redosing that as the patient is coming out of the trance-like state that they want to keep them in. So anywhere from 0.25 to 0.5 make per kg every five to 10 minutes is continually kind of given until they reach a state. The interesting thing here about the dissociative state that's you're basically trying to just maintain that there's kind of like no additional effect in giving more once you reach that dissociative effect of ketamine. So most of the time they'll say for a procedural sedation, you don't really have to go above a max of like four and a half to five milligram per kilo total for that sedation procedure taking place. For the continuous infusion that we're using up in like the PICU or for critically ill patients, it's going to be around like 0.5 to 2 mg per kg per hour of ketamine that you're infusing. And then for seizures, kind of a similar range there 
there, but almost on the higher end, so 0.5 to 4. Some studies that I was reviewing were also going up to like 7 or 10 mg per kg per hour. It's all kind of dependent, similar to how it would be in adults, as to when you achieve your birth suppression. And I guess limited by side effects too, as to ex exactly how high you can go and tolerate. From the sub-anesthetic dosing standpoint, my job is a lot easier than Morgan's. The dosing for sub-anesthetic use is pretty much the same depending on your indication. So for a bolus, for either asthma or for pain, dosing that's less than one mg per kg is kind of the standard. I think most typically you'll see in the range of 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per dose. And with a max of anywhere from 25 to 50 milligrams, with I think 30 milligrams being the most common dose cap for sub-anesthetic dosing of a bolus of ketamine. And then for continuous infusions, again, sort of anywhere less than one milligram per kilogram per hour is going to be considered sub-anesthetic. But most commonly, we're going to see continuous infusions that start at around 0.05 milligrams per kilogram per hour up to 0.5. Our next question is for you, Morgan, since you mentioned it or you sort of touched upon it in your response earlier about titrating doses based and considering ADRs. So can you describe a little bit about what side effects we can anticipate when we use ketamine in pediatric patients? Yeah. So for the most part, ketamine, of course, is relatively safe, but there are a couple things that you definitely want to be on the lookout for. So one of the first things that I think of is we talked about it having that sympathomimetic effect or that catecholamine surge. So making sure that there's no underlying monitoring for tachycardia, blood pressure, so hypertension happening. Nausea is a pretty common one that can happen, especially after procedural sedation. So vomiting nausea. Emergence delirium is one that is, you know, in the literature, it states that it's about 30%. I feel like having been in the ER and hear the result of emergence delirium, it does feel like a little bit more than that, but we'll stick with what the literature says up to 30%. And that just kind of comes about more so with teenagers or having like hallucinations. They do say though, you can try to create more of a positive experience for them. So maybe before you do the sedation, like acquainting them to the room, making sure that they kind of know where they're going to wake up at and trying to make that as comfortable as possible with like, you know, dimming the lights, slowly bringing them about if you can. One article I read said trying to encourage them to have a positive dream while they're sleeping, which I've not seen our nurses do that yet, but something that might help in that environment. The other thing to look out for specifically in the ICU setting is there's a couple reports of not only like just the emergence delirium, but actual like ICU related delirium happening where maybe we're having a lot more agitation and we're really having to kind of come off ketamine for those reasons. And then the other thing for procedural sedation, again, is it does cause probably the biggest issue that I think a lot of our attendings are physicians have with it is the hypersalivation and the risk of laryngospasm that could happen. And, you know, for procedural sedation, if you have someone that gets a laryngospasm, a lot of times they'll have to use like succinylcholine and kind of bring them out of it. So that could be kind of traumatizing to family and such. But in general, those are the side effects that you want to look out for when you're using ketamine. How about uh, contraindications? Who shouldn't get ketamine? So there's a relative contraindications and you know, they kind of change, it feels like, on a yearly basis or who you talk to from a prescriber standpoint. But for the most part, it is recommended that, you know, if you're the younger 
age patients, so specifically like in Lexicomp, it lists less than three months of age. You still want to watch for them. They're at risk more so for having some of that laryngospasm happen or just additional airway complications. In practice, I would say a lot of times that correlates to us just kind of being way more cognizant and using this in the younger population, so less than six months of age. You'll find case reports and things of it used out there, but if you're not as familiar with it, you definitely want to watch out. The biggest concern also is we talked about, you know, the positives of it having that catecholamine surge where it kind of preserves your blood pressure and such. But the downside to that is like ketamine in and of itself is actually a myocardial depressant. So if you were to give this to somebody who was already kind of catecholamine depleted, and it could send them in the opposite direction in terms of like their blood pressure and such. So you kind of want to watch for certain cardiac diseases. So like cardiogenic shock, diastolic dysfunction, situations where the resultant tachycardia might actually kind of point them in the opposite direction with less time to fill, less stroke volume happening, things like aortic insufficiency, mitral regurgitation, where they maybe can't handle the additional systemic vascular resistance that's coming from the ketamine blood pressure effects. The other things to be on the lookout for that are kind of changing, which would be looking at intracranial pressure. So it used to be we didn't really like to use ketamine for increased ICP. That data more and more is coming out and changing. And now it's interesting to see that we're actually kind of giving it for increased ICP. So there's more literature stating that in patients with traumatic brain injury, we can give this and actually see a sustained central perfusion pressure while decreasing the ICP, which is ultimately what we want to do. So the pandemic guidelines that we talked about earlier came out and kind of said, hey, if you need to use this for sedation in your TBI patients, this actually might be a good thing because it's looking at lowering your intracranial pressure if your other agents aren't working for you. The one that I still kind of would say that is straight away from, you know, providers and that's listed out there as a relative contraindication is still the increase intraocular pressure. So anybody that comes in with like an open eye injury, there's conflicting evidence out there on that as well. But I think in terms of risk versus benefit there and just not having as much data as what's listed in the ICP monitoring for ketamine, that's probably one that we still stray away from. And for our final question, what are some of the monitoring parameters that institutions, clinicians should have in place when using ketamine? Our institution usually, like for procedural sedation, we make sure that they have like an in-tidal CO2 monitor. You know, that can really help with your early detection of any type of hypoxic issue that's about to develop. And then, of course, having your blood pressure, your heart rate, respiratory rate, additional oxygen saturations available. And all of that should basically be obtained at baseline. And then depending on the level of procedural sedation that you're trying to achieve, you know, anywhere from every five minutes to 10 minutes, the nurse or somebody should be in there looking out for those items and changes. And of course, once you're kind of done giving the ketamine, you do want to just make sure that the patient returns to baseline. So if there were any vital sign changes or irregular things that happened, that that level of sedation is gone, of course, by the time the patient leaves you. And then in addition to what Morgan mentioned with the entitled CO2 heart rate monitoring, in the pain setting, what we often will monitor for are those undesirable neuro side effects. So a lot of patients who receive ketamine for pain will report experiencing anxiety. I've had patients reporting hallucinations or visual disturbances. For patients who are receiving ketamine for something like sickle cell disease, this is really going to be a sort of 
patient specific and patient driven thing on if the anxiety and visual disturbances are worth the risk for them. And the pain and palliative care setting or end of life setting, a lot of times we'll manage those types of side effects with continuous midazolam infusions to help sort of manage that anxiety and those hallucinations. And then similar to what Morgan said, having a lot of behavioral interventions, using child life specialists to help decrease the anxiety around their pain will also help to decrease the side effects that we see from ketamine as well. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank both Morgan and Sarah for a great topic and discussion on using ketamine in pediatric patients. For ACHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education for listening to this episode by visiting elearning ashp.org forward slash podcast. Please note that continuing education credit expires two years after the date this episode is published. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ACHP Official through your favorite podcast provider and see you at the next podcast. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.